So welcome to the um, Beyond COVID Asia town hall that we're running. Sorry, I had to have a pause there for a moment because I thought, what is the topic that we're in? But it's pretty obvious. What else would you be talking about? You have to be talking about Beyond COVID. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design and also the Design Executives Club. And this all started about a month ago when I wrote an article about Beyond COVID. How do we go flatten the curve and how do we also turn around and keep momentum? After that, a bunch of people began to ask me, well, how do we get into the conversation? So I thought, why don't we put some town halls together? We've done them in the Australian market. We've done it in the UK, in Europe. We've done it in the US. And so this is the Asian episode. We're going to roll these out for the coming six months, every month that we'll be doing a, another region. And the important thing about the, about the town halls is that we give the opportunity for multiple voices to be coming in. So we've got a mixture of architects here. We've got a mixture of people who come from other areas of design. Some people are in the design publishing space, in the digital space. And we're going to actually have a bit of a conversation about, well, how do we all collectively think about what those reimagining stages are? Where do we actually go from the shock plan B that we're in into either is it a return to plan A? Is it A plus or is it A different or is it a reimagining? Um, I'm going to actually hand over here to, um, I'm going to go to Andrew Mead. Andrew, your mic's now able to have you to speak. Come and join us here. Andrew's from the MTR. The, he's a chief uh, architect at the MTR. So, Andrew, you must have seen a dramatic change in patronage as people began to move around less, but Hong Kong didn't go into lockdown. So tell us a little bit about what happened for you. Yeah, well, ridership was obviously the first thing. We, we, we'd never been in under full lockdown like you've seen in many of the European countries, but ridership dropped dramatically when we first closed the border with the mainland. So that closed down the high-speed rail station, which we only opened a couple of years ago, and two very important domestic border links with Shenzhen, um, which um, and on those particular railways, on that particular railway, it's, it's been a kind of 40% drop in, in ridership. And the government has also been encouraging a work-from-home policy, even though we've not under lockdown. So we're running, it varies 40, 50% uh, capacity right now. Um, and interestingly, we've also shut down a couple of lines. We had a line dedicated to the Disney Resort. Um, and of course the theme parks closed. So, so that line, initially we were keeping it open, running a train every 15 minutes because uh, not surprisingly, a lot of people work there and they still needed to maintain the park. But uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we actually closed it down and replaced it with a bus service uh, for those people. Um, we still keep the airport express running. Uh, again, a lot of people working at the airport and there are still arrivals coming through, but again, we've reduced the headways uh, tremendously uh, down on that particular railway. Um, the thing, the big challenge for a place at MTR and, and, and public transit around the world is that we're not a social distancing business. Um, we're lucky we're not the airlines that have actually been virtually stopped from flying. Um, but how do you uh, maintain social distance in a train? Um, and the big juggling act that the corporations had to deal with is how many trains to run when you're running at just 40% capacity. In theory, you can keep run, trains running at 100% uh, schedule rates and then take the densities down. But of course, the economic hit on that is, is huge. Um, and so we've tried to be very flexible with our scheduling um, and primarily keeping certainly the morning and PM peaks um, up to relatively high standards so that the loading levels are, are, are much more lower on that. Um, and then some of the other lines that are not seeing such high rates going to basically what is essentially a Sunday service um, timetable 
Um, and again, that combined with a lot of people that are staying at home, you're seeing loads on the trains around about 50% typically. And of course, then that gives people a chance to a bit more social distancing. Um, the other thing I would say is that, and anyone that's based in Hong Kong would know, that there is 100% mask wearing in public. Um, mm. It's not a legal requirement yet, I don't believe. Um, and it's one of the interesting things that socially happened here. And I think because we had SARS, um, that the, the local population went mad for masks before they went mad for toilet rolls um, and used masks and masks is used almost 100% outside. And you are seeing now in the retail space, a number of shops requiring masks to be worn in their shops, but already people are wearing them virtually exclusively anyway. So Andrew, I want to go back over, over a decade because yep. your, your work history in the last decade has involved Singapore, Dubai and Hong Kong. Yep. And you've had SARS and MERS that have been in, in, in your contemporary planning. Mm-hmm. I think the first time that a pandemic like this happened or an epidemic, it must have been very disruptive. It must be now just a standard mode of operation. People are used to what to go do. Is that is that a fair summary? Uh, I think every, t- every time is a bit of a shock. Um, I think thinking back to the early days of COVID, I think even in Wuhan, there, there were, everyone was imagining this is going to be another SARS, um, which, if you recall, primarily affected Hong Kong, Singapore and Toronto, but it was largely under control. Off the top of my head, I think there was about 800 deaths, but it, it seemed it was quite infectious. Um, mm-hmm. And they went into lockdown in various places. So I think the initial reaction was, oh, this is another SARS. The, the long-term implications of how it obviously played out in Wuhan, I don't think anyone quite understood and expected to, to happen that we'd, you know, you'd see similar Wuhan lockdowns in Italy, in the UK and elsewhere. Um, in terms of like how to manage it, um, I think like every other business, we, we, it, it was a bit of a shock. I mean, you know, we, we, we had come off in Hong Kong of six months of the, the protests um, and we had been struggling with those because the stations have been particularly targeted by the protesters. They've been actually attacking our staff and our uh, facilities quite extensively. So ridership was already running down because of that. Um, and then this came along and we had to respond to it very quickly. Um, I think, again, goes back to a little bit of Hong Kong society, as much as MTR as a company, we very quickly uh, made available masks for our staff. We provide two masks for staff all the time, um, and it's, they get two staffs, uh, sorry, two masks per day, um, and the rest of the office-based staff get one mask per day uh, for the days we're in the office, and so as a company, we very quickly responded uh, on that basis. And, um, increased obviously cleaning of the uh, stations and the trains. Um, one particular thing where there was kind of like a design stroke technology solution developed, we um, were looking at automated cleaning of trains and we accelerated uh, the introduction of a robot uh, to come in and spray a, uh, a, a disinfectant inside the trains overnight. Um, and that now is actually in operation. And obviously the, the um, COVID accelerated the procurement of that. That was actually something we was already planning on doing. But certainly, you know, the number of units that we've installed and got going um, has been a particular response. And that's something we are sharing with the rest of the industry in terms of our technology on that.
And I'm going to, I'll, I'll check back in, back in with you on future Beyond COVID town halls because I'm yep. going to be interested to see where moving from a robot with an agent such as uh, a disinfectant uh, using light like a UVC, um, uh, which is a very interesting way to go and actually disinfect. There's no residual there. And we know that Boeing have been looking at it, hyperloop transport technologies have been looking at it. So it's going to be interesting to keep an eye of how do these things evolve because... That's what I think everybody wants to know is, are we getting good immediate responses and is it something that we actually build into standard operations? I'm going to throw over now to Afenia. Afenia runs a digital marketing company and crosses the borders of how do you get Chinese language and English language to, um, uh, to be able to market to each other. Afenia, you're in Sydney today, I believe. Yes. Hi, morning, everyone. Um, I thought it was a webinar. I'm very glad I didn't come in pyjamas. <laughs> well, bigger town hall, you have to be there. So, look, I think I can see here that uh, we've got uh, Jamie, Bob and myself all wearing the very uh, casual, you know, black T-shirt here. Um, so lucky it's, you didn't come in your pyjamas, although it could have actually just been a marketing statement. If any, you would have seen a lot of your clients that were preloaded and had campaigns with you would have then been talking about how do we go up our activity You've probably met some new clients who are saying we now need to actually communicate and we can't use some of our traditional channels. How's that gone? How's yeah, that you're absolutely you? right. So um, just to give you guys a little bit of background, we do have offices across uh, Australia, China and, and US and, and Southeast Asia. Um, so what we see before the pandemic is, well, all the Western brands wants to get into China because that's the way that that's the country to be. And there were a lot of campaigns and projects planned for 2020. Uh, a lot of brands wants to go big. Um, however, well, including airlines and um, however, pandemic hits and all of that went quiet. So, so all the Western brand has, has went super quiet, everything on hold. However, the, the Chinese brands um, are, having a demand now because China is opening up um, gradually and I have staff in China and they literally can go freely anywhere there's no uh, mask is not a compulsory anymore and uh, domestic travel is slowly opening up um, train traveling and plane is not so much still on a low capacity so the Chinese brands starting to think, okay, this year, um, traditionally they would do a lot of trade show overseas um, if they are exporting, if they are brand as and exporting as well. But this year they can do none of that. So we're getting a lot more inquiries about, okay, I, I'm a Chinese brand. I need to do digital marketing overseas now because I'm stuck here. I can't. I can physically go out and meet meet my clients, no matter they are B two B or B two C. Um, so the demand is coming the, the other way now, um, and I, I think that that's the most reason that I can see. Um, also from overseas, Western brands um, who are education, especially they are online education they are jumping on it and they were like, okay, I want to target the Chinese now um, I, because, well, I, I already have all the content online and they are familiar with that because um, there are multiple reports come out from China about what, what services or what industries has been, um, has been an adoption uh, faster because of the pandemic within China. So there are uh, number one, of course, is online grocery, online, um, 
or the live produce, agricultural produce, online purchase of that. But uh, number two is actually um, online learning, online content, and online pay content as well. So it accelerates the, the adoption of pay for content. And that includes um, educational content or entertainment content. So um, yeah, some, some brands are capturing on that. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think that's really interesting that we're seeing, you know, when it comes to the education sector, we had uh, Rick Bell from Columbia was on the, the US call and he was talking about the architectural students. Actually, they should have gone to Chicago and that they went and did an online visit to Chicago and then they went and had the same discussions that they would have had online and that they were able to go write their, their summaries online. And that's interesting. You know, architecture is often thought to be something that you can only experience if you're in the, in, in the physical space. And I know any architect would say that's exactly right. But we are learning how to adapt and we are learning how to go keep that scenario going. So I want to now go across to Jamie Drury because Jamie, Jamie, for those of you in Asia that aren't familiar with him, Jamie is both on-air talent for um, some lifestyle programs. He's got one at the moment which is called My House Rules which audience must be going through the roof. But he also runs a very successful design studio uh, that has clients in the US, throughout Asia and, and in Australia. So, Jamie, um, firstly, how are, the, how are the ratings numbers on your show going? Because everybody's at home watching. Yeah, I, th I think the, the TV side of business is, is really great. Um, there's, as, as we say in the biz, there's more, more bums on seats at home now watching TV than, than ever. So... I think this is kind of the shot in the arm that TV needed with uh, the recent online um, expansion with Netflix um, hurting the television industry in so many ways. Um, now free-to-air has become, I guess, a little bit more popular. So um, not as much as you would think, though. I mean, we, we thought the numbers would double, but we've probably only had about a, a 20 to 25% increase. Um, okay. So, but look, it's, it's better than nothing. And on that side of the business, I'm, I'm pleased. And so are the networks. Um, I think what's happened in, there are more people at home watching TV, but there's also more people at home getting online and, and streaming. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, you know, the market still is quite dispersed. Um, but look, yeah, I'm, I'm pleased that there's at least that side's uh, going along on our, on our design, uh, in our design business, some of our strategies have changed due to COVID, but I think from a positive point of view, uh, in a positive way, uh, I think we're about to launch an online furniture business um, with our catalogue of, of furniture, which which you've seen, Mark. I, I Up until this point, it was a retail slash online business that was driven by catalogues. Now what we're thinking about doing because we've got an increased online confidence of shopping online. Um, I mean, 15 years ago, people weren't really buying a whole lot of furniture online in America. Yes. Not so much here in Australia, the landscapes changed quite a bit now and people are starting to put more trust into buying furniture online. But now there's this increased uh, effect with COVID where I think people that normally wouldn't shop online, are now doing it. They're forcing themselves to get on and have a look. So we're going to take advantage of that um, and we're going to produce uh, a series of high-end catalogues and spoon feed uh, our, our collections 
directly to targeted households whilst we've got their focused attention because there's more people at home actually reading, watching, watching television, getting online. So whilst we've got that focused attention, we, we really want to take up uh, that opportunity and, and, and print some beautifully photographed catalogues showing the furniture and, and all of its wares in the right arrangement um, and, and direct mail marketing it um, to force the traffic to our online website. Um, and that's, that's our strategy. I can only really speak to that. I don't know how much that can contribute to everyone else's business. But, and, but there's a, so there was a reason why I've, you know, I've, I've gone from Andrew talking about the demand side uh, when it comes to transportation. Fanny has been talking about the demand side that's coming from digital marketing. You're talking about adaption on how you go and actually get your products out to market. But there was something in the Australian town hall that Jamie brought up, which was really interesting. It was he's got a full pipeline now. He's got some new projects that are coming through. But how does he have that cafe conversation? How does he have the at drinks conversation, the casual dinner conversation, the industry event conversation where he bumps into people that he can actually tell them about the project and then find collaborators, co-conspirators on it, or that people can actually offer to, to supply him? Like, Where's that come from? And so... Next week, we're going to be recording a thing which we're calling The Brief. It's uh, five by five minutes of people talking about their new projects and their new initiatives so that we can work out how to socialise it around because, Afenia, exactly as you were saying, there's people who had been going to trade shows and they're now needing to find new channels. Mm -hmm. Jamie's talked about that he's built an online shop uh, direct to public access because they've got confidence but also he hasn't got some of those other channels so i'm now going to go throw over to, to bob neville because bob's recently had a had a bit of a change in his world now previously bob was the and you're going to have to help me out with the exact title but he was the global retail head for new balance is that correct yeah, a global creative director so um, i looked after how the brand turns up at retail um, events, you know, brand, brand activation around the world at all sorts of channels. And so what's really interesting, Bob um, had that, that, that came out towards the end of last year, so pre-COVID, and now he's actually in, well, we're already delivering projects with this new capacity, but it's actually how do you actually start new business yeah. in this period? How do you actually make a strategic proposition to people? But it sounds to me like, you know, even if I was on this call here, you know, Jamie's actually the perfect man for you to go speak to about amazingly photographed, you know, uh, projects. How do you actually connect to people? The same with the fan. There's, you know, there's this interesting way. How do we thread together the amplification and promotion, the asset preparation? That's going to be a really necessary thing. And it's not just going to be about physical retail spaces. It's also going to be digital retail spaces. Hmm. So how far are you through the process there? Are you at the moment delivering projects? Are you out, um, you know, promoting and finding collaborators on projects? Yeah, I think the, it was always my intent. I mean, I've, I've worked in the corporate world now for close to 25 years at, at, at global levels within um, delivering creative tools for the brands to be able to do their business. And I was finding you know, that, that executives I've worked with have gone off into other senior level roles and other brands. And um, you know, people kept saying to me, you know, when are you going to do your own thing? And uh, it, it sort of got more and more attractive. And uh, so I, I decided that 
yeah, towards the end of last year, it was it was a good time to do that. Um, obviously, <laughs> I had no idea COVID was just around the corner, um, but but surprisingly enough, it's it's actually been really quite incredible, and you've got to be agile and adapt. And I, and I think yeah, when and yeah, a number of us here have worked in in China and Hong Kong for many years. I think that's something that you learn quite early on is that adaptability, the resourcefulness, and just just the yeah, you know, just just the intent to really push on and push through. So um, as around sort of September, October time, I was already with a number of American brands um, in China with resources we've got there, whether it's design, manufacture. Um, we'd already started doing a lot of virtual reality work so we could share built experiences with executives around the world, but also transition that build experience into virtual reality and then share that through online resources. So we've been exploring not just the built space, but the, the virtual space as well. And something that I'd worked on quite early on, not particularly sexy, but with, with e-commerce, you know, there's all these brands out there that need um, to have their products online. Um, and for each pair of shoes that you put online, you're probably going to need about five photographs. And each brand has a colossal demand and requirement. So something else that we looked at and set up, um, what we're calling a digital factory, um, basically a, a process-driven environment, um, quite a large footprint, but is able to take literally, you know, one and a half million photographs um, during the course of the year for a brand. And what I found actually interesting here you know, with all this, Mark, is that um, I, you know, travel got cancelled because of COVID. So I'm then sitting there like musical chairs down at my property in New Zealand and not in Hong Kong. I'm not able to go into Shanghai. Um, I'm sitting in my garage. So I've got a lot of good garage time, which has been fantastic. But um, what I started to do then was just have some fun online, you know, LinkedIn as an example. And um, it, it's, I, I, I wouldn't want to say that I've never been busier, but I'm literally from six o'clock in the morning through to, which is probably about three thirty, four o'clock in the afternoon here already. It's just been continual conversations and interaction. And not only has it been good fun, but it's been really insightful. And the way I've sort of pivoted with, with what I'm doing is you know, I have the ability, resources, and capability to design and build global flagships for brands you know, anywhere in the world. We've done that sort of work before. That, that's not the environment we live in now. You know, that, that's certainly not the appetite anybody has got right at this moment in time. But just to give you one conversation from yesterday, I was speaking to a, an American organization. Um, they've got 15 brands in their portfolio. And um, they just followed 85% of their staff. Um, and my conversation with him was not so much, you know, where can we build stores, you know, physical retail. I mean, it's just, again, it's all out of context. I turned around to him and I sort of said, each one of your brands has an e-commerce site. Each one of your brands is taking a whole host of photographs of your products and so many products throughout the year. Where are they doing that and how much are you spending? Now, this guy is a global president. He has no idea about how much money they're spending in that area. And I can tell you, it's going to run into millions of US dollars. So I've turned around to him and said, you find out how much money you're spending, how many photographs you're, you're requiring, 
And I can come back with a package which will not only provide you with a better solution that you've got now in terms of quality of image and even 360 rotating images, but I can do it at a far better price point. And um, he, he just went, I'll be back to you in the next couple of days. And, he, and he's come back to me. And, that, and so that's what I really love about that, the, that story there is here is a totally rethinking of how you go and approach something. And I wonder if, you know, in his mind, that it's actually because he's got the capacity to think about reimagining now rather than just plan a highly integrated, highly structured, highly dependent, I can't change things. So, you know, in many ways, there's an increased opportunity there because they're ready to change. And I know one of the differences that I, I find is if I try to contact a, ma a marketing, branding or design manager when they're not at a trade show, I, I get fobbed off. I go to a trade show and, or, or a conference and I'm their best friend because they're in meet mode, they're, yeah. they're seeking you rather than actually being busy and occupied with now. And, and so that, that's a really interesting thing, I think, for everybody to consider. I'm actually going to throw it now over to Catherine. Uh, Catherine, uh, for everybody who doesn't know, Catherine Shaw is involved in uh, the editorial process at Wallpaper and is it Metropolis, the other magazine that you're involved with? Yeah. So I, I write for magazines as well as books. And, and what I find interesting about the, say, particularly about what we think are print publications, they're not just print publications, they're also digital assets. But I know it's this week when a bunch of the people on the call here would have expected to be in Milan. And uh, you're probably thinking about what are you going to oh. do for Friday between... <laughs> I, I know there's going to be tears everywhere. I'm sorry to bring up that you're not in Milan here. Yeah? I can see a couple of hips shaking here. Okay, who was planning to be in Milan? I wasn't, but I can actually, uh, I think we got, it's like checkers here. I got three hands up. Okay, so I got four there. And, and so what I found really interesting was in February, um, Catherine was in Melbourne. We had a dinner. She met somebody who had a new um, uh, electric scooter. There was discussion about wouldn't it be great that I've got my scooter to get me around Milan. There was this lovely perchance meeting that turned into a brand opportunity for them. It turned into some transport for Catherine. Amazing things were going to happen. Now that's two months later and that conversation's dried up. It's disappeared. Oh, no, it hasn't completely. Oh, okay. It hasn't completely because um, it is something, it, it was so embedded in my mind. And in the thinking about Milan this week, I've been thinking about that scooter project and thinking about, okay, it's made in Shenzhen. Shenzhen is literally a stone's throw from where I am now. And I was going to get in touch with the designer and say, we should, we should be looking differently now. We need to just roll with everything that's happening and look for other opportunities. Yes, it's difficult to beat the sort of glamour of zooming around in Milan on one of the scooters with some top designers. That would have been fabulous and an incredible marketing opportunity. But actually, there are other benefits to it. Like you're talking about MTR. People don't want to go on a train, they, but they don't want to get on a bus either. You know, people are sticking, particularly in Hong Kong, if they can, they're staying quite local. I see mm -hmm. a lot of people, um, I'm in Repulse Bay, and Repulse Bay Stanley, I see a lot of people who are walking or have scooters. So, you know, there are other opportunities, but it, it's interesting you pick up that one because that is one of the things that's still in my head where I'm trying to think, 
there must be a different creative way of pulling this together within this COVID world that we live in now. And, and I think there is there. And, and that's what I think is really important is talking about how do you reimagine and yeah. then how do you activate. You know, they're very, very important elements in there. Um, <laughs> who I do want to go across to now is I want to go and actually pick up uh, let me see, where are you? They almost ran off my screen there, Julie. And Julie, you've been seeing a range of different markets that we've been looking at. And what I found really interesting is that we've got the US context where you've got, you know, work that you're doing there. We've also got your Asian context. We had a look at the UK together. What are you seeing that's happening that's so different between the Asian market as against those other ones that you've been able to pick in at? Oh, that's very interesting question. I guess <laughs> question without notes, but, but it is. <laughs> yeah, I, it seems to me that right now everybody's quite challenged by the fact that we can't travel. Uh, we mm -hmm. can't, in many ways, get back to business as usual. And then, Mark, as you know, I retired from HOK at the end of last year, hoping to take a fabulous gap year in 2020. And little did I know that the rest of the world was going to have a similar kind of gap year for a completely different reason. So I've had to retool instead of traveling to all these exotic places on my bucket list and seeing people that I've put off for years and years. Um, I'm doing a lot of reaching out online and I've found that um, in reaching out over the years, I was, I practiced for 40 years designing hotels. And in that time, um, a lot of work with a lot of people that have gone on to create their own companies. And I'm finding now that um, they're calling and we're having conversations and dialogues about their business and how they can retool their business for, for the new market and basically survive, um, you know, through this coronavirus time. So that's been uh, very challenging to see how, how people are retooling. Um, I think that Everyone, everyone's point today about moving to more of an online uh, business model is absolutely the way things are going. I teach a, a course every year at Harvard Graduate School of Design on hotel design. Uh, I was at the beginning of August this year to teach, and the request came in two weeks ago. How can you reformat your entire course, which is very interactive and based on two design charrettes? How can you retool that course to become an online course? So we're working with um, all of their experts there to figure out how we can do an interactive design process online, which I'm really fascinated by and excited about the whole possibility of doing that because that will really speak to how we can handle our client meetings in the future and design coordination meetings. So I, there's a lot of that good stuff going on. Yeah, and I, and I think that's really interesting to go see, you know, how can we now look at new acceptance change considerations and then begin to say, well, maybe we couldn't do this before, but now we're all a little bit further down the track. We've got a different maturity about how useful digital connections are, digital processes. It's not the same as real life. You know, that, that's going to come back. But it is something which is, you know, hugely important that we work out how to adapt there. I want to go ask uh, Dylan Brady here. Dylan, you've got some projects both in uh, in Australia, but you've also got them in Shanghai and also in Ho Chi Minh City. And I'm wondering how do you actually run your projects, which you're stuck in Australia because we're Australia and New Zealand are in fortress mode at the moment. Not, I think there's a few people, but not many getting in and out. How do you actually deal with all of that not being on site or did you ever need to be on site? Um, 
It's um, it's been quite interesting, actually, the way we're running Vietnam and China projects is exactly the same way that we've always won them. It's uh, and run them. We're 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 remotely dialing in. We have big um, teleconferences. Uh, I still need translators in the room uh, with me, and I've got Chinese staff to help with that. There's a lot of. Um, it's it's a lot easier to to understand that you can't travel to give the importance to the digital meetings because in China in particular, the face to face is very very significant. Um, I've travelled through China, you know. I've often joke I've been to China more than many Chinese people because, you know, when you've landed there 140 times, it's like that you you've you've, you've arrived a lot. And generally the first question people say is how are you? And the second question is when are you coming back? Uh, and then you do the business and the, uh, and the rest of it. The digital space has been um, quite compelling. We've been forced into it a lot more, but we're also not deferring important meetings to face-to-face -face time. And so some of that has actually accelerated our capacity to reach important moments and sign agreements and, and, and make decisions because we know we're not deferring it to the next time that I'm there in a month or whatever that might be. Um, China's opening up again now and uh, it's, I'm pretty grateful that we've got work in the, in, the, in, in the Asian countries like Vietnam and China who have seemed to have controlled um, COVID quite significantly. Um, all of uh, all of our our contacts over there and our local partners are all starting to open up again, and that and that and that work is turning on at exactly the same time as in medium practice forums here in Victoria. Most architects are laying people off um, because things are all slowing down. So I think that there's um, I think that to, to the to the points that that have been made already there's been a really, really significant reconnection occurring because of this. No longer can we rely on the people who are in our circle that we bump into, that we work with, that we're working with and that we're meeting and interacting with. We have to reach out to our digital network um, and it's it's been really interesting to watch supply chains break and reconnect in really interesting ways and to see people become successful by going, hey, I've got all of this stuff and people aren't coming to my restaurant. I'm going to change what I do and on my mailing list I'm going to start supplying food to people, not cooked, just my supply chain of fresh produce, fresh fresh goods and fresh equipment. Like a hairdresser, I went and got my hair cut the other day because the barber thought he'd try and open you know, one person at a time in the place, no more than 20 minutes. I said, how are you reaching out to all of your clients? He said, oh, well, I've got a website. They can visit me. I said, they're not going to visit your website. They're going to buy their hair product at the supermarket when they get everything in a rush and go home and they're going to change their brand before they go to the website and order one thing from you. I said, why don't you get in touch with everybody and say, hey, have you run out of this or have you run out of that? I'll put a little package together and send a care pack out to you to make sure that you've got what you need because that will convince people that you remember them and it's a way to reconnect. So that connection's really, really vital for us. We just picked up a job today in Joshua Tree. 
I'm not walking around in Los Angeles, bumping into people, having people go, hey, you should do this job for me. That came out of a web link to a web link from a project in Dubai through a thing. And someone went, oh, cool. Oh, man, I didn't realise you are doing that. Hey, we're going to do this project. Are you interested? I'm like, are you shitting me? Awesome. And, and I think that's, that's really interesting. You know, you've brought up a couple of things. One is you've had an opportunity that's come out from this esoteric, you know, link tree. Yeah. You've also been able to go help somebody understand that the idea that people are coming to you, you also have to go out to them. Correct. Which I think goes back to, you know, the comments that Jamie brought up in the Australian one, which was how do I actually find the next three to six months' worth of collaborators and co-conspirators? because we need to go do that. I'm going to throw over now to Michael Tam because, Michael, you recently were in the Joshua Tree, weren't you? Um, no, I was in Austin. Ah, oh, well, close enough, you know. It's a, let's say seeing nobody's travelling, that's very close, you know. It's a, everything's pretty close there. So, um, viewers, uh, Michael's from IBM. He's with their XI unit. And you guys are working on enterprise design of how are people going through transformation. This must have been very interesting because you've got some very long-haul projects and all of a sudden a bump happens. How has that impacted you on team? How has it impacted the schedule of work that's there? Because that's a bit of chaos, isn't it? It is. It is, a, it is chaos. It is tough. It is, um, it's a crazy time, definitely. I'm sure a lot of you have seen that. Uh, internet meme that people sharing around where, you know, the driver of digital transformation is not the CTO, CIO anymore, it's the COVID-19. So it is really the case when when everyone re suddenly realized, hey, we got to transform our business into a digital-led um, experience. And, and, and that's what happened. But of course, the biggest challenge is, um, like you mentioned, the, these kind of projects are long time, long scale, big scale. Um, so how can we get past that hurdle of a budget approval? That's the biggest challenge when you have like multi-billion dollars worth of deals that normally you get approved in one go now, every, every budget will be reviewed um, quarter by quarter, our clients. So, so that that's makes it even harder when you engage in client pitching. But, but now I guess, the fact is everyone change, everyone change. Um, our client, ourselves, IBM, we, we, we embrace remote working straight away. Um, luckily, we have all these infrastructure, all this practice, very mature practice, design practice also as well, um, mature enough to a way that we can just adopt remote working, get on WebEx, get on Zoom straight away. So it's not, it's not that tough in terms of way of working, but um, in terms of, I reckon in terms of how the market, how consumer, how how, how users um, going to be working or, or going through their life is going to be so different. I think, um, who was it? I think it was uh, Julie. Julie was uh, touching on how people would go to a hotel and, and, and um, interior spaces um, very differently after this COVID-19. Um, funny enough, we do... Um, at IBM IX, um, a lot of people doesn't know that apart from doing apps and digital website and digital transformation, we do spatial design. So bringing technology into interior space, how can we change that visitor experience is something that we are doing more and more. And then now suddenly this COVID-19 hits and then we got to also change the, that conversation with, with our clients as well. How can we design this physical experience, but with all this help of digital 
um, technology, but also plan for the future when people go don't have a different when they visit this uh, physical space with a very different expectation because of what they're going through right now. Um, working remotely, living remotely, living digitally. So that's something I guess it's worth everyone to um, to think about how you can make sure the offline experience, the physical experience equal, at least the expectation for your user or your visitor equal digital uh, online experience would be very, very important. Yeah, and I want to throw across to Andrew Mead there because Andrew, you'd, um, uh, you'd had a, oh, let me bring your mic on there. You'd had a circumstance where you were doing a new station redesign uh, during this process. And I wonder at that end stage of the station, have you actually had to change that? Or how have you been able to keep the cadence behind the project? Dylan was talking about the idea that some decisions are able to be made now ahead of the normal schedule because you know there's never going to be that face-to-face -face meeting. Has that affected you? Yeah, exactly that. I was, I was just thinking that certainly MTR as a corporation, we're not probably as like an IDM that was instantly ready for this. But we found that particularly this group of consultants, and maybe Dylan's more like this because they're lots of overseas clients, they were much more digitally savvy, ready to go into an automatic mode. And we've been kind of dragged along into that straight away as a, as a client. And so we're doing a 12-week design study of a new station. And almost from the outset, as we awarded it, COVID hit. So we've not been able to schedule the usual design charrettes, which normally would bring everybody from, from Australia, from UK, from Singapore, together for our design workshop. And instead, what we've been doing is we've been doing a lot more of these Zoom meetings. And as Dylan says, we've been making decisions like this, like this, like this. In fact, I think we're actually further ahead now because of the technology than we would have been normally. Because as Dylan said, we'll push it off, we'll meet next week and we'll talk about it. And instead, what's happening is we're making decisions and things are moving around. And the other thing is, I think this is also happening at a time of maturing technology, particularly in, in our world, the BIM world. So that the, the, the sketch designs are being translated straight away into BIM and we can 360 degrees see the spaces, understand the spaces, understand the issues, which you know, go back to when SARS hit us, the, the Zoom technology and the BIM technology was nowhere near as mature and it really wasn't possible to do what we're doing now. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, post-COVID, you know, how much it would change the whole process because it, it, you certainly won't go back to business as normal. And I think mm -hmm. that really is one of the things where it's, it has accelerated uh, the design process. And Brian Collins uh, in the US call, um, we was talking about the idea of reimagine because the I, we never go back. You know, we never go back to a previous state. We always reimagine and we evolve. I think what we're doing now is we're evolving a much bigger quantum. And through the team at Collins, we then got this idea of, well, how do we actually go talk about the design fiction for a better future? Can we go write little, almost fables that go and actually talk about the different aspects that people have reimagined and how they come around? Catherine, I know for, for you, you've had to go and reimagine how you're preparing and writing articles because so much was it that you had to visit a site, you had to be present there. Um, how are you tackling that? Well, it's quite interesting because I generally have a rule that I don't write about projects that I haven't seen for myself because otherwise you're completely reliant on whatever a PR person or team has given you. And 
it's interesting how when you walk through a space, whether it's a stadium or a hotel or whatever, I think as a writer, the, the value you, you add is to give an authentic review of how you feel within the space. So I found um, I'm working quite differently with the architects that I'm interviewing online. I did an interview the other day with OMA. They just done a big project in South Korea. I obviously can't get there. And um, another project with an American um, set of architects in BBJ, and they just designed a big stadium in Hangzhou in China. And for both, I was I had to really ask questions that were pushing them like, okay, when you're walking into the entrance, what does it feel like? How's the scale? Is it intimate? Is it comfortable? What's the light like? Um, and then I'm pushing them and I'm asking questions that will double check that that information they gave me is correct. In some cases, I've said to them, you know, because some of them, they can't actually get to their own sites, um, depending on what stage of mm. the construction it's at. So I've had one project where I got the contractor to just walk through parts of the site with his iPhone and just send me snippets of video. Because I want to get a sense of what, what's the light like, um, how does it feel in that space? And otherwise, you're just regurgitating the press release and you know, what value does that add? So I, I do think it's, it's interesting. It's pushed me to be, um, I think as Bob had mentioned earlier about this, this kind of being, be agile. Think about different ways that you can get your information. Um, and also, when I write about something, if I'm not 100% sure, I'll say that. I'll say it looks like this, but I'm, you know, I can't give that absolute certainty as though I've walked through it myself. And I also and, make a very quick decision whether I like something or I don't. So if you walk into something, you really don't like it. I don't write about it. So now I'm having to, I'm having to sort of almost open my mind differently to projects and ask and different questions. People are going to give you license there because I understand the contextual circumstance here. Normally you would be there. You're not able to be there at the moment. I know for, as so I was interested that you're using the videos of the walkthrough, we had a couple of nominations in the Hong Kong Design Awards yesterday and yeah. they were asking, would they submit a render rather than submit the final project uh, photography because they can't do the final project photography and yes. then to do the validation there we've said well submit us your um, you know during build photos so that we can get to see that it actually has been built last thing we want to have is that we're awarding projects that are vaporware that didn't actually get built so yeah so there's interesting ways that we're going to work out how to revalidate that there but the, the one thing that is really difficult is the texture the tactility of something because a photograph is so flat um, that when you're in a space, I go around feeling the walls, touching the, the banister. I mean, that's where the beauty of layering within an interior really comes out. And that's what I think a writer adds to a photograph. And that's why I think now video um, images are going to become the way for designers, creatives to really get across their ideas. Okay. So, I ask a question, Catherine. Have you considered like becoming a narrator to videos rather than just writing pieces that, as you say, go next to <laughs> photographs? 
<laughs> yeah, I'm open to all of that. Very good idea. That's yeah, it's open. <laughs> so you can see it's open mic now. Keep asking each other I, questions. I, I must admit, um, Catherine, I, I'm really interested to hear uh, your comments on that. We recently... Um, We've just completed the conceptual architecture for the first Fairmont Hotel here in Australia. And yeah. we, um, I found through presenting um, through Microsoft Teams that we had a much more focused audience. And because I, I was able to share the screen and actually do our 3D fly-throughs and allow them to feel what the lobby felt like, the, how big the voids were, it, we almost had a more focused um, group of, of people that we're presenting to um, that, than if we were in a boardroom. When, when people are checking their phones or they're on the computers, yes. you know, they're ab absolutely glued to the screen and you can see whether they're watching you or not. So you're kind of health checking the, the, the effectiveness of the conversation and you're modelling your... your your, the, the way you put your sentences together by, by monitoring their interest and their engagement. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's a really interesting forum and I, we found it much more effective. Um, so, yeah. yeah. One, of, one, of, one of the meetings that we were in, um, and, there's, and there's a tell here in some of the VC technology that, that I think has done the wrong thing. We're doing the, the new interior for John Holland and they've got a bunch of VC software that's got cameras that zoom in on the person who's speaking, right? And so what fills your screen is someone that's talking. And when that person's in the screen, the other people aren't. And what Zoom is doing, which is really different, which is that I can always see everybody. Yeah. And in any, in any large group, particularly when you're presenting and you've got maybe a couple of people from your team, the reason you take someone else is so they can be watching what everybody else's reactions are to the sorts of things that you're saying. So you've already worked out that, you know, when I start talking about this, I need you to look at that guy who's the money man because you need to know if he's going, bloody not again with the bucket, whatever. Do you know what I mean? In this forum... You can be looking at everybody at once yeah. and you can be looking at people and they don't know you're looking at them even though you're focused on everybody. So it's a really, really different interface yeah. to people and to, to reactions and, 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 and the like. I think that's quite fascinating in a, in a speed of decision or, or a, a, a nimbility of thinking um, opportunity there. It's, in a way, it's a, it's a forced um, mechanism to teach us all to be a little bit more present yes. when you're conversing, mm. and there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Mm. But, you know, I, mm. I sat in on a, a, a conference the other day where um, there was a broader audience and they were all chatting, sending in messages, and the panel were, were talking, having their conversation, and it really struck me that I moderate a lot of talks. Um, and the first thing I always do when I walk up onto a stage is my main focus is not the panel. My main focus is the audience because you don't want the audience to feel like they've just wandered in and they're on the periphery and they're just watching what's happening. You want your audience to feel like they're part of that conversation and they, they will have an opportunity to speak and ask questions and, and really integrate them. So visually, 
you're integrating them the whole time. You know, we crack jokes, we look out into the audience. And that's what I find is, you know, we're having a fairly small focused conversation here, but if there were many more people listening into it, that's like this invisible world. That's difficult. That's difficult to make applications for everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I gave my first uh, lecture to university students using Zoom the other day, and I was talking to my, because of the platform we're on, I couldn't see anybody. And yeah. I was talking to my video screen for an hour, which felt completely <laughs> and utterly weird. It is um, weird. And it? there are some new presentation skills techniques we all learn to need, uh, yeah. because it's a completely different experience to standing up on a stage, and then you, as you say, you, you pick your three people in the audience, you, you look at them, you make sure they're engaged. And suddenly mm. it's like, so there's somebody down in the bottom corner of my screen that's nodding, but the other people, and particularly at Damascus, how do you deal with this? Yeah. So we've all got to learn some new skills. And I know when we do the next series or, or the next round of these town halls, we're going to uh, go more into the webinar format where there's the speakers or presenters and then there's the audience that's in there. So we're going to have a much larger feed of questions that are coming through. And I think that's going to be interesting to see how we go pick them up in the open mic process and then begin to go talk about what we're seeing coming out from the community that's listening to it, not just the talking heads that are on the screen. So many different ways that we have to communicate. I have to run, but thank you, everyone. I've really enjoyed uh, listening to you all. Thanks so much. Cheers. Jamie, I appreciate your time there. Yeah? Thank you. But so, Michael, want, you were about to say something. Yeah, I just wanted to echo what Jamie was saying about people get a lot more focused when they're on, on a digital communication channel. So I used to do a lot of um, physical, face-to-face -face, uh, design thinking workshops for, for clients and community. And now we all switch to digital format. So we all jump on Zoom, jump on Miro. So the good thing is when people get to the ideation, when they're using a Miro platform, really just looking at their own computer screens, picking off digital stickies, digital post-it notes, they become much more focused. So maybe that's something, um, Mark, you could consider is like the next time, if, if you want to have more interactions between the audience and the speakers, um, we marry the uh, web webcam channel as well as the Miro or Mirgle, I think it's, it's the other one. I forgot. Um, to I look for, please send me a link and let's go do a training session or let me sit in with one of the sessions that you've got. That'd be a great way to go and actually extend. I can help. So, if you want. <laughs> really appreciate that. Everybody, you know, I, I try to run these tight if I, as I can, but what I found was half an hour is never enough and we, we're coming very close to an hour. I'm going to get some final comments out from you. Um, there's going to be a transcript of this so that we'll be able to go publish that and most definitely everybody will work out how to link to everybody. What didn't we miss about this reimagining of how we go beyond COVID? Is there anything that's sprung up in your minds? I, I would certainly be interested in, in um, people's view on how much we're going to start traveling or will we travel post COVID? Because when I look at how much I traveled over the last so many years and, and even during 2019, um, something I've really enjoyed is, you know, the, the Zoom meetings, which, as, as we've been saying, is a lot more focused than, than the way the um, conference calls and video conference calls used to be. But uh, I, I'm just not sure that I'm going to be traveling as much as I used to travel. And I'll be relying and using technology more. But uh, I'd be interested in other people's views, whether you know they're, they're going to be jumping on planes to go to Shanghai from Hong Kong on a, a Monday and flying back on a Friday. I mean, just uh, I just don't know what people are going to do.
I personally, um, you know, I'll miss the movies, but <laughs> that's about it. I, th I think that there is a major shift happening, not just in that transcontinental travel, but in should I be driving an hour and 45 minutes from yeah. West suburbs to my office and back every day, those three hours that everybody has back in their yeah. life yeah. are suddenly so present and precious and they're still working. They're still, for those of us who have the opportunity to, they are still working. Mm. And so if suddenly when you have to travel for work, perhaps the public transport isn't as busy as it was and you might have an opportunity, the traffic will be less, there'll be less load on the system. I think that there will be, and I know just from my practice, we, we have mental health days where people can come into the studio, reconnect, you know, get a nice cup of coffee, do whatever they want. But then everybody has got, I have to tell people to stop work. I think I said this last time. We have a gather in the morning to start and generally people have already started. And at six o'clock we get all together and I tell people to turn their computers off and I can check because otherwise they don't. They just keep working. And I'm like, go and spend time. Go hug your wife. Go go for a walk. Do your thing. But that that time lost at stop, which is a thing in elevator calculations, but that time lost in travel. I think we're finding is ours now, not somebody else's. Yeah. I would say the one, the one thing that I'm very interested in finding out more about is for me in this whole sort of lockdown situation has been the idea of how humour and design have sort of bubbled to the surface. There, there is a different appetite. There isn't any desire for the sort of big, overly glamorous, showcasing theatrical stuff, but clever design, really resourceful design. You know, people like, I'm thinking about the British designer, Paul Coxedge, and he's designed this amazing um, picnic blanket called Here Comes the Sun. And it's actually the patterning on, on the, the blanket actually measures out the two meters that you should be apart from each other. But it's a beautifully designed object. Uh, and, but it's, it's got humor, it's practical, and it's beautifully made. So mm. I think actually for me, I would love to hear more about designers who are using their creativity to come up with these sorts of ideas that not just are beautiful things, but actually feed into our psychology and make us feel better. And when I had my haircut, I, I proposed to the hairdresser that he offer, instead of a $40 haircut, he offer a $20 Zoom groom, which is just a front of the head. And then it doesn't really matter what's going on at the back. It's Zoom groom. Exactly. I'm getting a mullet. One of my staff said, are you, are you, are you advocating the return of the mullet? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave the mullet because I'm actually get, I'm getting one at the moment. So I'm going to actually pretend that doesn't exist. Catherine, I want to go back because you, you touched on something really important, which is we need to know what's going on now. So this is a bit of a cross-promote. We changed the Now Design Awards to, now, to be called the Now Design Spotlight. We did one which was a COVID edition last month. We're about to go do another one that we'll release next week. We're wanting to go and show... What are people doing highly responsive, which is not just solving the disease, but also solving the human need? 
And yep. that example of the blankets is one of those perfect ones because we can't all just be about how do we stop germs going around. There's more to life than actually just thinking about germs. And that's Very when perfect. we start to thrive, when we get beyond COVID and we actually say, how do we actually respond and thrive to this? So thank you for that cross mark there. I'm actually going to wrap this up, everybody, for the people who are watching. Um, I do appreciate all of your time here. It's been fantastic. It'll be online. You can sign up for them for next month. But the most important important thing is make sure you're feeding back to us how you're thriving in this beyond COVID stage. Thank you, everybody, for your time. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Thanks, Thanks.